Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and each week we look for interesting books, and once we find one, we interview the author, or in this case, authors, of the book in question. And today I'm very happy to say that we have Elizabeth Armstrong and Laura Hamilton on the show, and we'll be discussing their very interesting book, Paying for the Party, How College Maintains Inequality. I was really excited to read this book because it turns out that Elizabeth and Laura studied a place much like uh, I teach, that is at the University of Iowa. They uh, invent a place uh, or a name for a place called Midwestern University, and I think the University of Iowa could stand for that place. I don't know, and I won't ask them what the actual university was, and I suspect they couldn't tell me. But they have some very interesting things to say about how uh, large state universities, in essence, I don't know if this is the right word, but they kind of accidentally track people, and largely on the basis of their class backgrounds, and we'll go into some depth in discussing what that means during the course of the interview. But I'd like to begin by saying uh, thank you, Elizabeth and Laura, for being on the show. We're delighted to be here. Great. Um, Let me ask you, uh, just to begin the interview, to say just a few words about yourself. Elizabeth, maybe you could start. Okay. Um, I'm Elizabeth Armstrong, and I'm an associate professor of sociology and organizational studies at the University of Michigan. Um, I, well, study higher education and culture, gender, sexuality, and other things, and um, teach courses on um, higher education and um, to undergraduates on sometimes on sexual diversity and other related things. Um, and I'm delighted to have the opportunity to talk about this, this book. Great. Well, we're glad to have you here. Laura? Uh, yes, I'm Laura Hamilton. I'm an assistant professor of sociology at the University of California, Merced. And I study higher education, gender, social class, sexuality, and family. And recently have been teaching family and education to undergrads. Mm-hmm. I see. So let me ask one of the two of you or both of you to answer this question. Why did you write this book? And let me say by um, way of prefacing that question, it's actually kind of an interesting story because you actually didn't start out to write this book. You started to write another book, as I understand <laughs> it. So uh, who would like to begin? Oh, um, yeah, maybe I'll begin. <laughs> Elizabeth, go ahead. <laughs> Okay, so I'll I'll step in here. Well, um, you know, study. I was um, originally, um, you know, right at the time where kind of Laura, you know, joined me on this project, interested in looking at sexuality among college students. The original um, proposal for the project was called um, the erotic curriculum. I was interested in what undergraduates learned about um, sexuality in college. But Laura and I got into the residence hall floor where, where we studied. We, we were on um, we were on this floor um, where all women lived for the an, an entire year with Laura um, being the primary um, ethnographer on the floor. And as we um, got to um, get deeper and deeper and deeper into the women's lives that um, lived on the floor, we uh, realized that social class was um, a kind of primary organizing feature of of their lives and of their experiences, which ended up pulling the book more towards um, towards investigating social class and their experiences and, and how that shaped their experiences in college. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you found something yeah. along the way that shifted your focus. We, oh, yeah, yeah, we even had okay, a, go ahead, Laura. Interview. We even had an exchange and emails that we note in the book around 2005 mm-hmm. after our second year in the in doing these interviews where we, one of us said, I don't know how this project has become so much about class. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was this shift that was occurring um, and that even we were surprised 
um, mm-hmm. as, as it happened. Mm-hmm. So, um, Well, the results are very interesting, and I have to say they're somewhat surprising to me, having taught at one of these places for quite a while. Um, let's talk a little bit about the nature of the study itself. Uh, it's interesting in the sense that it's uh, both ethnographic and statistical. You do both things quite well. Can you talk about the, the setup of the study and the subjects? And um, I guess I'd also be interested to know um, what it was like to present this to um, the Institutional Review Board, that is the people that say it's okay to study human subjects. Well, I can talk about the participants in the study, and I'll uh-huh. let Elizabeth talk about the, the IRB or the Institutional Review Board. So okay, go ahead. With that. Yeah. Um, so the study was, it started with a year-long ethnography, which is when you observe and often participate in the lives of the people you're studying, um, where we occupied a dormitory floor on a large dormitory on campus, um, in fact, the largest dormitory that housed about a third of incoming first-year students. And we had a room. And by we, it was Elizabeth and I, but also a team of researchers, which proved to be really useful because everybody brought different perspectives to the project. There was an undergraduate who was in a sorority. Um, there was... Um, a couple of other undergraduates from different places in the state and some other graduate students. And all of us had sort of different takes on what was going on, which turned out to be quite useful. Um, We lived there, um, mainly we didn't live there overnight, but we would come and stay during the day. Sometimes people would be there in the evenings, late into the morning, um, for over the course of a year. And during that time, we also started conducting a series of interviews that would become longitudinal, where we interviewed the 53 women on the floor. Um, And that first year, um, we sort of split those up, and I ended up doing most of them over time. So we interviewed them at their first year of college, second, third, fourth, and then a year after they were slated to graduate. Um, I should note, when we first got on the floor, we weren't certain that we would even be able to tell anything about these women. They seemed so similar to us. Um, They were all, you know, unmarried around age 18, 17 or 18. Um, They were all identified as white, most identified as heterosexual. A lot of them even shared the same name. I can't remember how many, um, you know, women... There, there are several names. I think we end up, I can't remember if Elizabeth remembers the number of yeah, names about, on the floor. About 30 out of 50. <laughs> yes, 30 out of 50 yeah. names were actually unique. So we were really thinking this is going to be challenging. Um, but as it turned out, there was something that varied considerably, and that was social class. Um, there are women on the floor who were so wealthy that their parents, um, typically their fathers, were CEOs of large corporations and had access to private jets. On the very far other end, there were women whose parents um, operated a farm um, and couldn't, you know, these women were actually contributing money to their household so their parents could afford to buy things like toilet paper. Um, so there was a huge range of social class, and that was something that we ended up really zeroing in on. I don't know if Elizabeth now would want to talk a little bit about IRB. Yeah, because I, yeah. I, I've had a little bit of uh, experience with that, not, not personally, but through colleagues, and it's, um, uh, it's difficult to do it with a small study, but this is a huge study. Mm-hmm. So go ahead, Elizabeth. Okay, yeah. Well, and another thing I want to make sure that to mention is, well, why it was that Laura ended up collecting um, so much of the data and how that kind of really tipped sure. us off to what was kind of going on in the situation. When we went into onto the floor, um, basically that the, the young women kind of, some of them quite even like fled from me. I was much older and they were like, oh, an adult, an adult. And Laura was younger and kind of more socially similar to them. And that was, there was extreme reactions to us um, was part of what kind of geared us to thinking about how much status and and kind of hierarchy and kind of competing to be like popular and things like that um, were, you know, how much that was a real, a real you know, force in their lives um, and, and the ways that it actually shaped our behaviors too, like, like getting mm-hmm. much more worried about how we looked. And um, like one day I ended up going to the mall on the way um, to the field site and a kind of hopeless um, 
kind of effort to like to have a cuter shirt, which was it was doomed. <laughs> but, but yet we found ourselves like going, oh, this is what these young women are experiencing here, um, and you know, and so that really kind of you know tipped us off to how how extreme these pressures were. But then it also made it the case that Laura, who fit in better with them, ended up really um, being the one who was really able to connect with them and kind of to collect the collect the data. Um, and, you know, in the case of the Institutional Review Board, it was a nightmare to get it, get this project through. Um, it was, um, you know, it took months and it, they required us to write, um, like a kind of 10,000 word memo, basically indicating what we would do under any particular eventuality that could have occurred, um, and they didn't allow us to step out of the role of being kind of faculty and kind of instructor in the sense that the, the young women knew who we were. They knew um, that we were in kind of, um, you know, in kind of officials from the university from the moment we stepped foot on the floor. So in that sense, they, you know, it was, it was quite transparent. They weren't being like spied on or anything in the sense of not knowing who we were. And we were also expected to continue in a kind of, you know, um, supervisory responsibility in the sense of we were not allowed to watch anything illegal. Um, and if, if we saw anything kind of dangerous to the young women, we were expected to sort of take the same kind of um, actions that a faculty member, um, you know, on campus would be would be expected to, to take. I mean, this did... I mean, as one might imagine, kind of <laughs> initially create a little bit of a, um, of you know, a, a challenge to building rapport with them. But I think that particularly because this, we talked with them over five years, um, um, we were able to really kind of make real connections with them. Mm-hmm. Well, it's remarkable in that way because you do kind of get to know uh, a lot about these women. So let's turn to the mm-hmm. argument of the book itself. Um, and let me sketch just very briefly a kind of a, a investigative model and tell me whether it's right. These women come to these mm-hmm. schools and they, they have certain backgrounds. Uh, these are these class backgrounds. And then they also have as part of their identity. And then they also have, uh, they have ideas about what they want to do. Um, and what you do in the study is you take those backgrounds and those ideas about what they want to do and you um, use them as variables to predict the way that they will turn out, that is, in terms of class, uh, after they get done with college. And I think the basic argument of the book is that there are a number of forces and institutions that are complicit in what we might call reproduction of social class. Is that a fair characterization of the book or the the research project? Well, you've definitely got the sort of, you know, the fact that students come to college with certain orientations. Um, That part is definitely true. Um, but I want to emphasize the extent to which that intersects with the organization of social and academic life of the university. So students come to college expecting certain things. And I would note, though, too, a large segment of students um, come sort of to state schools by what we call default. They're kind of like, well, um, I could go to school A or school B because I live in this state, and they just sort of go to one of them. Um, and those students are actually quite flexible, um, even more so than the students who arrive either with a more academic or a more social orientation. And these groups of students enter the university where there's a specific way in which academic and social life is structured. And we talk about that as a pathway. And you can kind of think of pathways as sort of roads through the university. And some pathways are really well-resourced really hard to avoid. Um, The party pathway, um, the sort of example we often give is a really um, large highway system where there's lots of on-ramps. It's really easy to get on, um, not perhaps as easy to get off, um, and traffic, you know, picks up speed really quickly, and it's it's hard to get out. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas other pathways um, that maybe students came to the university seeking are not as well resourced. They look like sort of backcountry roads that have potholes and have, you know, um, this road is closed signs. 
So a lot of what matters, too, is what the students find when they come to an institution, which is to say some students um, would actually be better off in a different institution, mm-hmm. and whereas some students are going to succeed in an institution like Midwest U. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Elizabeth? Yeah, um, yeah, that definitely kind of sum, it kind of sums it up. I mean, one of the things I would emphasize in particular is is how difficult um, um, the the young women found it to find what we call the mobility pathway, and we, um, a, a mobility pathway would be what um, people from relatively disadvantaged backgrounds who maybe don't have a, a lot of money or their parents don't have a lot of knowledge about how higher education works. They, they come to college um, needing it to be affordable. They need, um, well, everyone needs it to be affordable. These students do, you know, um, but for the, 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 if they make a mistake um, and an, another semester gets added on or something, it's incredibly consequential for these students in terms of debt or whether they can complete it all. Um, they, they need... Um, really good advising because the parents are really not in a position to help them out much. Um, you know, they they um, may sometimes need an additional sort of remedial course here or there to kind of catch up on um, kind of academics that their high school didn't actually provide them with. I and mean, we found that these women at this particular school that we studied just generally did not find um, that the school supported them in these ways at all. And so virtually all of them left the university um, and, and went to um, smaller regional schools that, um, in fact, where they ended up finding a, a better mobility pathway. I mean, this was a big surprise for us because I think we had been just completely immersed in this notion that, that, that it's always better to go to a higher prestige university and that if they left the university, it was going to be a total failure and their, mo- their mobility projects were just going to come to a screeching halt. And, and we didn't find that. We found that the ones who were sort of pretty much pretty pragmatic. They looked at the situation and they were like, the school is actually not set up to meet my needs. Mm-hmm. And they were able to go, I'm going to go to a school that is set up to mm-hmm. meet my needs. And mm-hmm. they, the sooner they got out and moved to a, a, um, a place that was better suited to um, provide a mobility pathway for them, really the better they did mm-hmm. um, in terms of accumulating less debt and you know shorter time to finishing their Agree. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So I guess one question I have is how did you how did you place the women into one of the three pathways? We haven't talked about we haven't talked about the professional yeah. pathway yet. How, how do they get into these pathways? And there are three again, just for our listeners: the party pathway, the mobility pathway, and the professional pathway. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess there's the, the issue of like. And, you know how how did they move into these pathways, or how did we figure out that that's? <laughs> I guess how did they again? I guess how did you figure out that these pathways existed? And I guess I'm especially interested in what their expectations or orientations yeah. had to do with yeah. where they ended up. Uh huh. So, okay. um, do you want to chime in, yeah. or should I? Okay. Yeah, sure. Um, so we started. Well, this this is. Uh, <laughs> It's a very loaded question because it was not loaded, but it took a lot of work, actually, to figure this out. Lots and lots of coding, um, actually, to do this. But the issue of um, the orientations and how they fit with the pathway, um, I'll sort of take that. Um, the, so the students came with a variety of different orientations. As I noted earlier, a significant chunk of them came um, sort of by default. And they, didn't, they could have gone either way, that group of students. And we looked at this sort of um, based on their first year interview. What did they say? Um, why why did they say they chose this school? And um, what did they want to get out of college? Students who came by default um, sort of invariably landed at Midwest U sort of um, because there was no better option or everybody in their high school was coming there. Um, that's why we call it by default. And they were open to both social and academic experiences. So it was really sort of unclear um, which way they were going to go. Um, another group of students came um, primed to party. And these were students who were 
um, out-of-state primarily, affluent students who from the get-go knew that their college experience was going to be about socializing. They planned, um, they would have never chosen a university that didn't have a robust Greek system. Um, from the gate, they were ready to have a social experience. Um, and for them, college was mainly about the sort of social connections they could make in exclusive social settings. And that's what they were seeking. Mm-hmm. And then there was a group of students that were um, cultivated for success. And these students were um, also affluent, but they were a different group of affluent students. They were much more studious coming in, and they had professional careers in mind. They wanted to be dentists, uh, lawyers, doctors, this sort of thing from the start. And their parents, um, you know, well before they got to college, had identified, you know, what skills their children had. They had spent lots of time and money preparing them academically. They did, you know, a massive college tour where they found the exact right college that had the exact right program for exactly what they wanted to do. Um, And so they came in sort of ready to jump into um, the professional pathway. Mm -hmm. And then there were um, a group of students who, I can't actually remember the exact label at the top of my head. Elizabeth, do you remember the label? The the motivated for mobility students that I was just kind of talking about before. Yeah. Um, yeah. That knew that they wanted it to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sorry, we're going back and forth. They knew that they wanted to... um, sort of, um, they were using college as a practical means to get to um, sort of a class position that was different than what they grew up in. Um, Most of these students came from rural um, towns in the Midwest, and they explicitly wanted to get career credentials that would lead them um, to mobility. Mm -hmm. So these different sets of students with these different orientations come to Midwest University And then um, we sort of coded them according to how they got sorted into the different pathways. Because it wasn't always, um, some groups were rather obvious. Um, Some people, the people who were slated for the professional pathway, um, those who were slated for the party pathway, um, those groups moved pretty predictably into what, what we thought they would move into. The groups that were a lot more sort of, um, influenced by the organization of social and academic life were the ones that were um, sort of there by default. And then the students who were motivated for mobility because, well, as we noted, there wasn't much of a mobility pathway for them to actually get on. I don't know, Elizabeth, did you want to talk more? Um, yeah, well, I'll talk maybe a little bit more about the professional pathway and also just, just also how difficult it was to kind of kind of code and analyze that in the sense that I think many people would think that actually the professional pathway is what pretty much everyone should be on in college, that the idea of going to a four-year college and graduating is to be able to move into a professional job, to be something like a doctor or a lawyer, you know, go into, you know, business in a kind of management kind of way or something like that. Um, But actually this was, this, this particular pathway at this school was kind of actually kind of like a tightrope. It was really, really, really hard to stay on. Um, in the sense it was entirely possible. We did have some of the women that um, that kind of pursued the professional pathway ended up as what we call them as achievers. These were the ones who got into law school, who got into dental school, who who ended up getting really great entry-level jobs out of, you know, after graduating from the business school. But the majority of the people who kind of, who pursued the professional pathway, many of them, the types, well, who, who arrived at, at Midwest University by default, we ended up coding them as underachievers because they actually just, didn't make it in the, in that way. They ended up with you know kind of really lousy GPAs. They they with with resumes that were not really good enough to get them a job that required a college degree. They they were still kind of vague on what they were interested in. They really 
didn't really have much to show for their for their college experience. Like for example, we had there were two young women, and they were from pretty privileged backgrounds. They they were kind of had upper middle class parents. They arrived at Midwest University. They arrived there by default, and they never got interested in anything. They just were completely pretty much inert. They had no interest in any of their classes. Their grades were entirely mediocre. Their majors were just kind of like vaguely selected. They actually made no new friends. They went home to, you know, socialize with their friends. They joined no clubs. <laughs> they, mm-hmm. they, basically, they basically did nothing. And so when they graduated, they had nothing to show for what they'd done. And they were completely had nothing that they could use to translate into a job requiring a college degree. And so they didn't get jobs requiring a college degree. They, they're working at one of them was work, got a job as a bank teller and um, another one in a kind of similar type of thing. And so this, these were, these were um, situations in that case of kind of downward mobility through higher education. And that's a story we almost never hear about. We hear a little bit about, kind of failed upward mobility, um, colleges not serving um, kind of disadvantaged students very well. But we don't really hear anything about that it's possible to, you know, to have for, for families with children with a fair amount of resources and money to send their kids to these schools and to have them graduate and for them for it to not really translate into much. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. So you talk about in tracking these uh, Three kinds of student, I guess I might say, mm-hmm. that is the partiers and the people who want to um, rise up through the ranks, who are pursuing the mobility pathway, and the professionals, or they would be professionals. Mm-hmm. Um, as you track them, uh, it was one path more difficult than another? Because in each case, you talk about people who make it, that is, who successfully mm-hmm. pursue partying into what is basically the recapitulation of their class position, and some who don't. And then with the mobility, you know, yeah. so, some people actually do raise and says, and some people don't. And then you just talked about professionals. Some people do actually enter the professional class, and some people don't. Is one more difficult than the other, or how, I, I guess I'm interested in that question. Well, there's so one. I guess there's a couple of sets of questions in what you're asking. So one question is why do certain pathways work for some people and not work for others? Um, and that has a lot to do with the fit between what the pathway has to offer and what students' needs, agendas, resources are. So for the professional pathway, um, for instance, students that are going to succeed in the professional pathway had to have sort of what we call in the book like navigator parents Mm -hmm. with them um, from essentially from day one. Like college was basically like a team activity. And um, I ended up interviewing their parents um, for my dissertation, and they do actually talk in terms of, like, we. You know, everything is a we, not my daughter, right? Um, And these parents um, helped their kids select the perfect college. They started looking, and one of them sat down with their student in their first year or two of school to figure out, okay, well, let's look at graduate school. Let's look at dental schools and see what you're going to need for dental school. And this was the first year of college, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but they did this because they found out, okay, well, you know what? Not only do you need a stellar GPA in this type of major, but you're going to need um, to be really involved in community service. You're going to need to shadow a dentist. You're going to need to do all of these things, and you need to start right now. Mm-hmm. Now, people who didn't have parents like that, and that really links to social class because these are upper-middle-class, highly-educated professor or parents, in fact, this one parent I'm talking about um, was a professor, so they had a really good sense of what was necessary. Um, People didn't have that. Um, We're going to have a much harder time um, staying on the professional pathway. In fact, one woman who we um, parallel next to the woman I just mentioned, um, she um, started also wanting to be a dentist, Um, looked the same in terms of her GPA, um, looked very promising, but as college sort of went on, it became quickly apparent this wasn't going to happen. One, because um, she got sort of several years into her career or her college career and realized, well, I don't even like teeth. 
because she hadn't actually done some of the earlier experiences. Yeah. And so, and her parents didn't know to tell her to do that, right? Also, you know, her, she got really, in, I know, it's been funny. Um, she also got really involved in the social life sort of unexpectedly because she was middle class. Um, she was quite beautiful and charming. And so she kind of got swept up into um, the social scene. And this turns out to be um, not a good thing for her, actually, um, because she ended up being more social than she anticipated, and it really hurt her grades. Whereas the other woman I was talking about with the parents that were helping her navigate, um, they actually helped her every time she ran into a situation like, you know, my roommate's partying really hard, she's pushing me, to do that as well, they talked her through it, right? They coached her socially as well. So just as an example of a professional pathway, you can see that staying on that pathway requires a set of resources um, that not all students had. Maybe they, you know, multiple suits wanted this type of career, but you had to have this sort of set of resources in this context where there's a narrow professional pathway to succeed. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Yeah, and the same, and the same was actually true with the party pathway. And one, one might think that what kind of resources, uh, you know, other than you know some money to get a six pack or you know a, a keg of beer or whatever is, are needed to party, but actually we found that to party at least in the kind of elite social circles of this campus, getting into the top sororities um, and kind of running with the kind of fastest crowd um, required a lot of resources. Um, just simply the clothes, you know, the, the hair, makeup, tanning, vacations, um, car eating out, um, sorority fees, um, being able to never have to have a job except maybe, you know, during the summers, um, um, because the social demands were so, so intense. It really meant that, um, that basically only, um, very affluent women could really fully participate in that. And, we found that the, the Greek system, in terms of women who got into sororities versus women who didn't or didn't or kind of immediately recognized that this was not for them, was pretty much entirely class segregated. Mm-hmm. Like upper middle class and upper class women got in, the others did not. Mm-hmm. And and so so the experiences of exclusion, of not fitting in, of being snubbed, of being ignored, of not having the right clothes, of just not measuring up socially, um, were um, were really um, something that was very painful for a number of the women. And and these things actually ended up translating out after college, too, because as it turns out, the women who could pursue the party pathway without it being kind of consequential were women who we discovered, (laughs) this was a surprise to us as well, that that there are still in this society some people who actually really don't need very much um, real human capital from a college degree and that there are some families who are in a position to and willing to more or less infinitely support their offspring mm-hmm. out of college and, and, and can do so either sheerly by finances or or by picking up the telephone and calling, um, you know, a... Uh, someone like a CEO of another company or a friend or buddy or somebody that they know and getting their kid a job. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, so that the, the role of parental networks in, in the employment of affluent um, kids out of college is we, we were, that was a surprise for us as well. Like what a, what a huge role um, the parents played. Um and it was a surprise too for the, the girls who had tried to who had tried to keep up and participate in the kind of fast party life, and had just barely managed to do so, only to find out that um, they were, you know, resigned to living in their parents' basements after college, while other girls had parentally supported apartments in Manhattan. <laughs> and they're like, wait, wait. One of them told us, no one told me Disneyland was going to end. Yeah. One of the things you point out in the book is that it's not exactly a level playing field. Uh, as you say, the organizations themselves, that is the universities or a university in this case, um, has an interest in each of these three constituencies, but it's not an equal interest. And some pathways are better 
I guess, supported or funded or resourced than others. Um, can you talk a little bit about that from the organization's mm-hmm. perspective, the university's perspective? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I'll, I'll start. You know, public universities in particular have been in a really um, sort of dire situation um, since the 1980s, effectively. Um, sort of state and, sub- and federal funding has been increasingly been pulled away. And so schools that relied on this um, have increasingly had to rely on tuition dollars. Now, some schools um, are elite enough or um, prestigious enough, um, maybe the sort of very top of the public ranking and then a lot of um, highly ranked private schools to where they can sort of select students that are affluent um, and have strong SAT scores and cater to those students. But schools like Midwest U, which are moderately selective, um, can't compete effectively. And so the students that they can um, sort of get more easily are affluent students who are not as students. Um, Students that want a more social experience, like those students who came prime to party. And those students can pay full tuition. They can pay out-of-state tuition. Um, And so increasingly, it's been um, sort of the situation where public schools like Midwest U have had to attract those students. And those students want um, big-time college sports. They want Greek life. They want partying. They want the social package. Um, And that also requires um, academic sort of accommodations. That requires majors that are going to allow them to party all week and not take classes on Friday um, so they can have a longer weekend. Um, We we identified um, a set of majors that we called easy majors that have higher GPAs on average, which means it's sort of easier to get a good grade. They have um, lower learning scores. Um, over the course of college, there's less sort of skills learned, and this is reported in um, Aaron and Roxa's book, um, Academically Adrift. Um, and a lot of them sort of rely on charm and personality, not as much on um, sort of objective thing criteria like can you complete a math proof. So schools that are wanting to attract these um, more social students also are going to want sort of an array of easy majors um, on offer for those students so that they can effectively party and do academics without um, failing out, right? Mm-hmm. And so because they've really had to attract these students, this is sort of some of the organizational yeah. changes that have been made. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I would I would chime in on that, 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 that this is not something that most of the administrators at these schools would like to do or would prefer to do. Um, most administrators are pretty firm believers in, you know, meritocracy and sort of the kind of, you know, a notion of mobility, kind of access and equity and all of those things and would prefer to be able to build and maintain and resource really, really vibrant mobility and professional pathways. The, the need to kind of attract the tuition dollars of really socially oriented students is something that is, um, is you know, a pure survival strategy, not, not, a, not a kind of really like, oh, yeah, this is, this is this, you know, it doesn't sit well with people to, to have to do this. Um, people would prefer not. And, and, it's, and it's tricky because if, 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 as funding continues to decline, um, the pool of potential people, the pool of, of affluent Americans who are willing to pay out-of-state tuition to send their kids to a public university in a different state, that is a really small set of people. And more and more of these um, kind of public universities are in the game of trying to fight for this, like, really pretty tiny set of people. I mean, which is actually leading to even strategies of like increasing the number of kind of of wealthy international students that that are sought after because there's a real desperation for for the tuition dollars wherever they can come from, um, anywhere on the globe where you could get them. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, this is true at the University of Iowa. I can tell you mm-hmm. that uh, mm-hmm. the university itself relies very heavily on students from Illinois. Uh, mm-hmm. and particularly what is called Chicagoland. And mm-hmm. they do, in fact, pay out-of-state tuition. 
And it is a lot more than the kids from Iowa pay. And we do uh, have, I think if people went to Iowa City, they would be surprised how many Chinese students there are. It's truly remarkable. Mm-hmm. Like I live, you know, I'm in Northampton, Massachusetts right now, very liberal place. You don't see any Chinese students. They don't go to Smith College as far as I can tell. But at Iowa, there were tons of them because Iowa did a very good mm-hmm. job of recruiting them because they will pay full freight. Uh, I don't know that many of them are pursuing the um, the party pathway, but no, they were definitely paying so. full freight. Um, I guess one question <laughs> yeah, I have is – I think it's a different path. Yeah. yeah, yeah I, I guess yeah. One, one, one question I have is um, – so if these universities are competing for uh, uh, tuition dollars, they, they really um, – outside some sort of external input of cash, they really don't have a choice but to offer this party pathway. This is the only way they can stay afloat. Is that right? Yeah, it yeah it kind of is. And, and the people, for example, the people in student affairs are really aware of it being um, a competitive thing. Like for example, um, two of the young women that were on our floor, they were originally signed to another dorm, one where they didn't want to stay, and their you know their mom called the residence life to kind of have them reassigned to the dorm where they wanted to go, and the admissions officers are aware that if they don't make these requests and accommodate these, particularly before the students have arrived on campus, the students might go to a different similar school, you know, um, and, and they are, they are looking for, they have the options. They're looking for the place where they're going to have the most fun. And if, if, if they don't get assigned to the, <laughs> to the like, for example, in our case, the party dorm, they'll go um, mm-hmm. to the other the school. Like another one of our women, she selected our school because she thought the weather was better and there was more socializing kind of outside than in, you know, a similar school in another place. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're making, I mean, people can't control that, but these schools are, are doing things to control what they can, building like luxury apartments, <laughs> residential apartments, you know, making sure that the, the recreational facilities are, are competitive, um, kind of doing kind of showy things to make the campus look pretty, um, and kind of making sure that uh, the sort of social experience is really going to be fully resourced. Mm-hmm. And then for those students that want to pursue the mobility pathway or even the professional pathway and are from the lower classes, they suffer because resources are shunted toward paying right. for the party. Right. And, 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 and resourcing the mobility pathway properly is enormously expensive. It is, yes. Because the money has to actually go into education. It has mm-hmm. to go into small class sizes. It has to go into really intensive advising. It has to go into serious financial aid. I mean, do, you know, it's expensive um, to really do that properly. Um, and so generally what the schools do, we found, or I don't know, at least, at least in the case yeah. of the school that we studied, is instead of building a really big mobility pathway that would serve all the students who need it, they had um, kind of teeny, itty-bitty little programs, like what we call them as creaming programs, that, that, that take just a few students from disadvantaged backgrounds and kind of make it really visible that, you know, that they have this program on campus um, that pours a huge chunk of resources into a very, very small set of students who are already on the extremely high achieving end of students of disadvantage. But, so it, it becomes kind of a symbolic display of actually being able to do well by students from disadvantaged backgrounds without, in fact, serving the needs of the vast majority mm-hmm. of the students who mm-hmm. need it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we did that at Iowa. I won't be specific, but definitely we had that program. Um, no, no, no question about it. I mean, I guess this is a very sad thing because it seems like a collective action problem. That is, I think most people in higher education would say at least uh, the, the sector of higher education you're talking about, this is sort of um, mid-upper level state schools, uh, yeah. realize they're not doing a very good job. But that, that none of them, since they're all in competition with one another, none of them – None of them can really change anything. I mean, I'm thinking of a notional university that simply said, okay, we're just not going to play this game anymore. You're going to come mm-hmm. to our university. It's going to be really hard. We're not going to have any Greek system. We have no football team. We're just going to make you into a good student. And if you don't like that, you can leave. There's no mm-hmm. way they could get away with that. Well, and one of our concerns, too, with you know writing this book is that um, by sort of pointing out all the ways in which these large public schools aren't serving students of modest means very well, was that would sort of give impetus to people to, you know, oh, well, we shouldn't be, you know, funding or provide, you know, sort of state support for these institutions. When in fact, 
It's actually <laughs> the fact that the declining public commitment, declining state support for higher education has created this situation. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that, this has been sort of one of our sort of concerns, too, about um, how this book would be it's funny because I, just to give a personal anecdote, I never really understood this. I wrote an op-ed once uh, for the big paper in Iowa City, which isn't that big, of course, in which I said, uh, if a student gets arrested or has some brush with the law while they're drunk, that is, they get a public intox um, or they get interference with official acts, that is, messing with a cop or public urination. And, you know, the the blotter, which is published in the student newspaper, shows that there, there are dozens of these every weekend, dozens and dozens. Um <laughs> And everybody can read them. I said, well, if, if a student has that brush with the law, well, they should get kicked out for a semester. That makes sense. You know, they go away. They come back more mature. This has consequences. You know, they're part of our community. They have to act well. Uh, the administration didn't like that at all. And I kind of realized why after reading your book, because those students would leave. They'd go someplace else. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, we would right. lose those tuition dollars. And they wouldn't dollars. come back and they would take their tuition dollars. Yeah, that's right. Those students yeah. would leave. I mean, and I taught at another institution – and I, you know, I didn't think of this idea myself. I taught at another East Coast institution of the very prestigious sort where that's exactly what they did. They did it every time any student had any brush with the law. They got kicked out for a semester. And everybody and said this put- was the right thing to do. They all went and they all came back. In fact, they all cried yeah. when they got kicked out, you know, because they really wanted this degree badly. It was worth a lot of money and they knew it. And so they all came back. Mm-hmm. Whereas, I mean, I can easily yeah. see how at you know, Midwest U or University of Iowa, they would not come back. They'd go to yeah. you know, Minnesota or someplace else. I don't know where they would go, but yeah, I, I, yeah. Guess, yeah, I see what you're yeah, talking about. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's precisely it. If, you, if, you're, if, you're, if you're desperately dependent on the tuition dollars and you don't have, you're not secure enough to know that you have, like, like if you're Harvard, you're, it's going to be fine, right? If you kick someone out... <laughs> There's going to be somebody else who would be perfectly happy to right. take that position. Right. Well, and they're going to come but, back. The students are going to come back. It wasn't really just kicking them out. Come it was back. asking them right. to take a leave they're not, of absence. They're not going yeah. to. They're not going to go away. Yeah. Yes, There's and, a and, leave of absence. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, is there anything to be done about this? I mean, I'm thinking about it from a faculty point of view. That is somebody who teaches these kids, and you know, I am very aware that I'm not doing my job very well in the classroom. But you know, something else I'm very aware mm-hmm. of: it, the administration doesn't care. It just doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm probably teaching one of those majors that's easy, and there's no incentive for mm-hmm. me to make it any harder. In fact, it's just a lot of trouble for me if I make it harder. Yeah, um, and we, we talk about that in the book as a kind of um, disengagement contract. A number of higher education scholars have kind of have talked about that, that, that in schools like this, there's kind of a bargain that gets set up where the students are, are like, I won't bother you. I'll, leave, I'll give you a lot of time to do your research because I'm not going to come to your office hours. And, but you, you need to give us, like, you know, no lower than a B. Um, you have to kind of make it really hard to fail the class, assign us multiple choice tests, let us look at ESPN and Facebook in our 400-student lecture. Right. <laughs> well, you know, and, and everybody will just kind of agree to kind of go along and get along. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, in the book Academically Adrift that Laura referenced earlier, uh, Aram and Roxa really point out that it's, it's not really mysterious what are the situations that help students learn. If they have, if they're assigned a lot of reading, if they actually have to do it, if they have to write, if that writing is read and responded to, if they, you know, say meet with their faculty members um, and get feedback on that writing, um, you know, if there's consequences, yeah, they they will learn. But those that that kind of teaching is um, well, <laughs> when I is is laborious and expensive and isn't in fact. Um, you know, there's, there, there are plenty of faculty at, at schools like Midwest University who are, in fact, still doing that kind of teaching. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's hard because it's not the, the, um, the whole context, the organizational context of the university does not make it easy, does not provide the resources to kind of really do that. Yeah. And I mean, the I, students I know, are not necessarily there for that. It's not rewarded. No, either. it's not rewarded at yeah. all. I mean, I used to say in faculty meetings and other places, uh, much to my chagrin, that you cannot teach 40 people how to write. You do not teach 40 people how to play the piano. You can teach one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm-hmm. it's beyond me why this is called a writing class, because I have them do writing, but mm-hmm. I'm not teaching them how to write. Writing is hard. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's just impossible to teach it in a group level like that. I, I mean, I, I know that lots of administrators will say, oh, it's just not true, blah, blah, blah. We can have this technique and that technique. But look, you know, facts are facts. It's not possible. And I would tell yeah. my classes, I'm not trying to teach you how to, to write. I can't do it. Um, I can yeah. teach you a certain Wait. number of facts, but to write, that's just not on the table. Yeah. And they liked that very yeah. much because it was sort of the, you know, you pretend to teach and I'll pretend to learn kind of arrangement. Probably get fired for this. This kind of gets to the <laughs> in the book. You know, like we talk, we spend sort of um, the last chapter talking about what could be done. I mean, there's clear, obvious sort of recommendations for how things could be changed. And there are clear, obvious reasons why <laughs> they probably won't be changed. Um, but sort of one thing that we have talked about, though, is one way to go about this too is advising, getting information out, I guess, to families about sort of where, you know, where your student would be best suited, what are red flags, what things, you know, particularly for a student that's um, from a disadvantaged background um, or a minority student, what should you look for and what should you avoid? Um, and so some of those things we talked about were, you know, large and visible um, Greek systems, um, if you're on the top 100 party school ranking, maybe not a good place for you. Also, you can you can get sort of the retention rates for um, minority students and first-generation students at various schools, mm-hmm. and those are really telling. Some schools actually manage to graduate virtually no black students, mm-hmm. um, despite having, you know, a, a small percentage of students attending their school that are black. Um, this sort of stuff is extremely telling, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, also looking at like what the majors are, how many easy majors do they have? Um, are there things that the school offers? Um, like there was this competitive business school at Midwest U and it had sort of this program where it matched students up with internships and employers, but it was only offered for that school. If you could find, you know, schools that have more extensive programs like that to where the resources aren't, they're not depending on parental connections, the resources are offered through the university, right? Um, so things, you know, sort of flags and clues parents can use um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. sort of help them make these decisions. Yeah, I mean, that's that's all very yeah. reasonable and good. I mean, I um, I can tell you honestly, if I got a very good student in my office at Iowa, and I saw that they were floundering. It's pretty easy to tell. Uh, I would say mm-hmm. you need to transfer to the local liberal arts college mm-hmm. because yeah. there's probably a 40% chance that uh, you are going to fall down one of a number of rabbit holes. And at the local liberal arts college, not very prestigious, admittedly, uh, and probably expensive, but they have a big uh, endowment, um, you won't fall down one of those rabbit holes. You, you, the, you know, so by even being in your office? That's yeah, that, that's amazing. I mean, but I would call them office, in, though. You know, I would call them in out of class. Better. I'd go, like, you come to my office because I've seen that you're actually mm-hmm. a little bit motivated. We're going to get you out of here. Um, yeah. Because I knew I didn't have time to spend with them, and nobody did, and nobody wanted to. Um, mm-hmm. Because, and you know, you mentioned uh, actual information that's available at universities. I know for a fact that all universities are terrified by the idea of giving statistics on outcomes of any sort. Mm-hmm. Right, because the major ones. You can ones, find it. It's kind of hard sometimes. Right. <laughs> it's fine, but yeah, yeah. But I mean, I, they I don't would, advertise it. Yeah, it's it's they're really terrified by it because what what it would show it would show massive inequality. It would show basically the poor job that people are doing teaching, um, and you know the the really prestigious ones don't have any interest in it because it might show that a lesser school was producing a better result, and they don't want that. And then the ones that that have this sort of bargain, you pretend to teach, I pretend to learn. Well, they don't want it because obviously it will put them in a bad light and faculty members yeah. don't want it because it'll show they're not teaching very well. And you know, it's, it's a, uh, yeah, it's, really... and it's just a huge amount of uh, hassle to even collect yeah, information collect the data, so that right. the people who, you know, have to compile that information don't want to do it either. Right. Well, so, I just proposed, you know, I proposed at my university, I just proposed we give everybody a test at the end. And that was, you know, nobody, no way anybody was going to do that. Yeah, well, no, that raises another happen. whole yeah, can of worms yeah. in terms of the accountability issues. Right. Um, but what I was going to pick up on is the issue of, like, your your notion that of, of the kind of advice to sort of send the student to a, kind of the local liberal arts college because there aren't as many rabbit holes to fall into. And that's exactly what we're trying to get at with making this kind of organizational argument is that we're trying to really suggest that that 
one of the things that universities do or that colleges, higher education uh, places do is make it easier or harder to screw up. Um, if you're at a really well-endowed kind of, you know, um, liberal arts college where there's heavy faculty involvement, a lot of advising, where there's none of these kind of easy majors, it's just as harder to screw up. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've got, we've gone and talked about this book, and and um, somebody you know said, "Oh yeah, when I'm, I'm my faculty at Oregon um, orientation at Notre Dame, we had a solid week, and they told us like if you ever get a student in your office in trouble, here are the you know eight things that you're supposed to do, and you're you know you need to make sure that you take care of them and provide them this resource and that resource and do this and this and this, um, and that's partly partly it's kind of what um, what affluent parents are looking for when they're looking for these um, to send their kids to these um, elite liberal arts colleges, mm-hmm. they both know that they can continue the intensive parenting that they've been doing all along, but they also, you know, want to make sure that the the rabbit holes are um, are few and far between. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That you know, well, their kids can't. Yeah, go ahead. I- I say, and it relates to sort of the extent to which, like, the sort of all this work is being outsourced to a family, or is it being provided in the university? Like, a really endowed liberal arts school is offering, as you're suggesting, like, all of the services that sort of a navigator parent would offer, but it's built in mm-hmm. to the university. So students who don't have those things, who don't have parents that are really highly educated and can advise them very well in their classes, um, who can help them sort of balance the social and academic, that's all in the university. Mm-hmm. That's, those things are there. You know, and a lot of um, sort of less privileged parents didn't realize when they sent their kids to the, to school like Midwest U that that wasn't there. Mm-hmm. When I interviewed them for my dissertation, they were like, yeah, so, you know, I had a hard time filling out these, these forms for FAFSA, but I just assumed somebody would help her there. They assumed that there was somebody whose job it was to sit down no and way. help them fill out their forms. Yeah. And that would be likely at a liberal arts school, right. but not possible at Midwest U, where the family resources, it's all being outsourced to the family. Right. Well, I mean, after teaching there, I was the director of undergraduate studies in my department, and I used to have um, parents would come with their uh, prospective students, and we'd sit down and we would talk in my office, and I would say, you know, what you need to succeed here is uh, basically you need to be an adult. You need to be an adult, and you need to be highly motivated. If you're not both of those things, well, you're not going to do very well. And, and if you feel like you're not either of those things, you should go to the liberal arts college down the road because they will, they will basically stand in local parentis for you. And, you know, when I was a kid, I needed that. I needed that when I was going to college. I went to one of these small liberal arts colleges, and thank God I did. <laughs> you know, being an adult, though, and being motivated isn't enough. Yeah, well, I mean, after reading your book, maybe you're right. I don't know. It's true. I, yeah, mm-hmm. I'm astounded. I'm, yeah. Go ahead. The, you know, the students who came in as adults with adult responsibilities they were pretty socially isolated yeah. sort of immediately, and that became sort of one of the key reasons um, for them that they kind of had to leave. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, well, of course, I'm sure you've seen this too, as the students who were having to work 30 hours or more yep. a week for money and, and things like that. So they had... They had adult responsibilities, but not necessarily um, kind of... I don't know, upper middle class savvy about how to navigate um, a university of this sort. And those are, those are not quite the same thing. So, yeah. well, I, can so, t- I, can I mean, t- they were just up against huge obstacles. I, I mean, I can say one thing that I think is probably consistent with your research. And that is when I taught at the uh, very fancy, um, very well regarded university back East, my students were more or less, and I don't say this in a bad way. They were cookie cutter. Everyone was like every mm-hmm. other one. Um, usually their parents were professors or doctors or lawyers. They came from some kind of money. Uh, they were all very good students. They were all highly motivated. Um, mm-hmm. I remember thinking to myself when teaching there, I could ask them to read a thousand pages a week and they wouldn't blink. They would do it. Mm-hmm. Right. But when I got to um, Midwest University yeah. at the University of Iowa, I realized that, you know, I had a different challenge because you have to serve such a diverse clientele. I mean, there's just a really yeah. huge different in a group, difference in a group of 40 students and, and trying to mm-hmm. find, you know, how to serve those different constituencies, it's a really hard thing. At least it was for me. That's that's a challenge for the people that, you know, for administrators that public universities have served, like, 
multiple constituencies that have multiple interests, multiple yeah. agendas. It's hard. Yeah, it is right? really hard. To sort yeah. of to do all of these things at once. Yeah. Right? And inevitably, one group is getting, sort of, if you look historically over time, inevitably there's sort of a pathway that's more developed or less developed, right? That one group is getting served better than another because resources are zero sum. Not everybody can be equally so, right? Right. I mean, and I don't want to come away from this discussion sounding like I don't think that Midwest University and places like it are not wonderful. They truly are in the broader perspective. I mean, we invented this kind of thing, and we do it better than anybody else in the world. Nonetheless, I mean, there are some disturbing things about it uh, and things that are not easily – I mean, you point them out in the book, the thing, you know, problems that are just not easily solved and because uh, yeah. everybody's locked into position. You know, and um, yeah, and it's just there's there's not a lot of room for for wiggle. I think, um, yeah, it's- yeah, no, yeah, I think that's true, and I think I think so that um, you know, certainly sort of university presidents and kind of administrators and sort of education policy people are kind of wondering whether American society is basically going to let its big kind of published university system, which has historically been the kind of best in the world, basically just go by the wayside, kind of, because there has to be a sort of public commitment to, to reinvest. And, but I think, I think, um, you know, most people don't think that, that the, the money is ever going to return to the sort of golden era, the kind of post World War II levels. And that, you know, should, should, should there be re, commitments to the university, it can't necessarily be like the same old, same old. Um, yeah. you know, universities need to do more, do it better, and do it with, with less money. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of discussion now about what this kind of digital revolution means and how, how universities should intersect with that. There's no getting around the fact that universities are going to have to. Um, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, there's a lot of problems. Um, but, but recommitment and kind of and being not just more funds, but thinking about what to do with them in a kind of smarter way is, you know, is going to be crucial. See, I you know again I, again just the way in I don't know, this sort of become Marshall Poe's opinion about higher education when really it should be about your book. <laughs> um, the, oh, sorry about that, but I don't think it requires yeah. any more money. I really don't. I think it requires a reallocation of tasks. Yeah, changing incentive structure incentive structures for faculty would help. Um, like I, I work with a lot of graduate students. And a lot of them would love to be able to teach more and better than they feel like they're going to be allowed to in their careers, or yeah. they would like to they would like to teach students um, better than they're allowed to here, you know, at the University of Michigan where I'm at now. Um, and if they were offered faculty positions um, where the kind of incentive structures really, really, really valued teaching well, they would. I think develop careers as really, really effective teachers. Um, but that's, you know, it's, it's again, that's, so that's, so what you're talking about actually in terms of, a, you know, reallocation of, of tasks and sort of the, the changing of the job um, is perhaps, you know, one solution that could, that could, um, you know, that could work to some extent that wouldn't require as, as much, you know, additional reallocation of money. There are though, um, a lot of people who, well, if they're if they're in this game for the research, would actually just well leave the field. <laughs> well, that wouldn't be particularly bad either, because there's just I mean, in certain disciplines, a lot of disciplines, even in scientific disciplines, there are just too many people yeah. that want these jobs. I mean, and what that suggests to me is that they're all paid too much. I mean, if you have a lot of people that are seeking a job and you're paying X, well, you should just cut the amount you spend them and hire more of them. But nobody is going to do that. No, no way. Um, so. Well, and realistically, the people that are paid the most, too, I mean, like where, if you look at sort of recent studies, suggest that financially a lot of the dollars are going to administrators. Like yeah. you should be really careful about sort of like start arguing, you know, that faculty are being paid too much. In fact, most of the money in the university goes to sort of administrators that are increasingly um, expanding. Well, right? Yeah, I mean, there are more administrators. That's definitely true. Yeah. yeah, that's definitely true. But, I mean, it just seems to me that uh, – you know, it, I don't know. It's it's a very it's a very strange situation to ask the people of Iowa to pay for my job, and then I do certain things that that are really of not any benefit to them. You know, like for example, a sabbatical to do research. What is that? I mean, in industry, I worked in industry. There's no such thing as sabbatical. What what the heck? 
You know, they're right but to see, question this is that. The kind of, like, you just have to be really careful because this sort of line of reasoning can quickly lead to universities just need less money. They need to operate on smaller yeah, budgets. Yeah, that's and that's yeah. exactly what the book shows is yeah. problematic. And that's what I was trying to suggest earlier, that yeah. that kind of thinking yeah. creates more of a problem. Yeah, no, it's, uh, like I say, there's, yeah. everybody's yeah. locked into position and, and, here. And, and, and in fact, the, actually, the other, there's a definitely constituency that's trying to protect the research university in terms of protecting the research aspect of it, because oh, yeah. the um, declining funding of the university is not just hitting the students, it's also hitting the, the, the kind of the research mission, and there's all sorts of issues with the global competitiveness and economic right, revitalization, right. and certainly here at here at the University of Michigan, like one of one of my colleagues was just in in, in DC, kind of lobbying to try to you know protect NSF funding mm-hmm. by by presenting evidence about the sort of all the different ways that the university research kind of you know revitalizes and builds like you know economies, and so so you know so it's a it's a it's a thorny it's a thorny set. Um, set of issues and figuring out how to preserve the research university as the research university and how to sort of actually serve undergraduates in terms of providing um, the best post-secondary education. Those are related but distinct Yeah, no, it's, but it's very, you know, I think as we've all agreed, I mean, the, the, the thing, but is this, this thing developed organically? You know, it's, it's responsive to economic conditions and social conditions. It's changed sort of of its own volition and not with any plan, and it's become what it is. And like mm-hmm. anything that grows organically, you can't just pull a piece of it out. The rest of mm-hmm. it will wither if you do that, or it will be resistant to that kind of change because it's locked mm-hmm. in. You can't just pull something out of it because it all works in some way. And I think what you point out in the book, and this is a wonderful part of the book, is you show how all of it works together to give uh, what is really a suboptimal result. But it all works. <laughs> you know, it all works. Yeah, no, it's optimal result for some. Yeah. I mean, the thing that, of course, makes it really complicated is that it actually provides a really good result for for a few. Sure. The, um, yeah, you know, the Achiever Girls did fine. Yeah. And, you know, the party, the affluent party girls did fine. And, you know, a number of the faculty do fine. Yeah, right. And, so, it's a sweet job. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I want to thank you guys for a very lively yeah. discussion. We've been talking with Elizabeth Armstrong and Laura Hamilton about their book, Paying for the Party, How College Maintains Inequality, and boy, does it ever. Um, uh, before, <laughs> before I let you guys go, I want to turn to each of you individually and ask what you're working on now. Elizabeth, could you start? Um, yeah, well, um, uh, I'm you know, still working with Laura. I'm figuring out there's, there's some of the papers from this same data set were about uh, these young women and their sex lives. We didn't let this, the sexuality aspect of mm-hmm. it completely fall by the wayside. So we've written on hooking up and we're, uh, we've are in the kind of review class on a paper on the issue of the, the young women calling each other sluts and what that means mm. and how that's not good. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so there's, yeah, so there's a bunch of sort of stuff related to sexuality that, that we're kind of still working on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Laura, that's what you're doing? I, yeah, I mentioned um, that I, for my dissertation, I had collected interviews with the parents of these women mm-hmm. and also looked at sort of national data focused on the issue of parental investments. Mm-hmm. And um, what is sort of the optimal strategy for parents who are sending their children to college? And that's what the second book is going to be sort of focused on. Um, and I'm in the trenches working on that right now. That's a very, it's a very interesting idea, actually. I, I like that very much. I think you should copyright all that information um, and then <laughs> sell it for a lot of money to people who'd be interested. I think that'd be a great idea. So, um, yeah, we've been talking with Elizabeth Armstrong and Laura Hamilton about paying for the party, how college maintains inequality. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I want to thank everyone for listening today. But I really want to thank Elizabeth and Laura for being on the show. Thanks, guys. Thank you. It was fun. <laughs> all right, bye-bye. Bye.